This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, the employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's 100K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grades can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay-Z. Farm so hard, What's good, fam? your host, Jim Pruitt, a.k.a. Farm Danny E.D., and I'm bringing you another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. Today, we have another special episode, and this is going to be a co-release. I've partnered with Preset Responsibly, and we're giving you guys a phenomenal episode. And I, I want to say it's one of our, our best works up to date. A few things to shout out before we get into this episode. For one, happy Pharmacy Week. Uh, this should be dropping in the middle of October. So by the time you guys hear this, it should be happy Pharmacy Week for you guys. So I'm thankful for not just all the acute care pharmacists, but pharmacists everywhere because uh, we are a community. And without all of us doing our job together, we wouldn't necessarily be able to do the things that we do. So thank you for everyone out there. Another shout out to again, this is going to be our when you guys hear this going to be our third year of being a podcast. We've done some phenomenal things. We've got highly rated and for us to have such a a unique niche as far as our market. I think we're doing a good job. So thank you for all you guys who've been listening over the last three years. It's been a, a special time for me. So I really appreciate all what you guys have been doing. And I'm just really thankful for 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 everything. And lastly, I just want to say again, if you guys are appreciating all of our stuff, again, always look out for our Pharmacy Fraud Day Pearls with our free blog that gives you some of these bite-sized information that you need from the acute care ED standpoint. And check out the PACU. That's going to be our premium website. And we have a huge project that's going to drop at the end of the year. So go ahead and get on board with that and check us out. And again, all of that stuff is going to be in our show notes. So we're very easy to find and always get on our email list to stay up to date with the most recent episodes. But I'm going to go ahead and jump into this episode. Again, this is co-release for Preset Responsibly. And I thank Jason and, and David for interviewing us on this episode. So thank you, guys. Let's get into it. Our, uh, for our episode tonight, uh, we have Jimmy Pruitt from the Medical University of South Carolina, MUSC. Um, and an interesting conversation, which we hope we'll all find engaging. But as always, as we start the night, uh, we need to tell the listeners uh, what we're going to be drinking for tonight's uh, discussion. And I have, uh, Jason, you're going to like this, a Tito's with Diet Mountain Dew mixed in it. Okay. Um, so I have a Tito's and Diet Mountain Dew. Uh, Jason, wow. what, are you, what are you drinking? And uh, then we'll turn it over to Dr. Pruitt. Dave Hughes, I cannot believe you took Mountain Dew and mixed it with something. It's not good enough straight up. There's always ways to improve, Jason. I tell myself that every day. There's always ways to improve. Well, since we are uh, rapidly approaching Halloween, I decided to uh, pop open Stone Brewing's uh, Pumpkin Nitro Stout uh, out of a can. The the pop of that nitro sounds really great. Uh, you know, really getting in that Halloween spirit. So I'm I'm ready to go. Uh, how about you, Jimmy? Unfortunately, man, I'm sitting here drinking a water and a BCAAs mixing that. So my pre-workout drink. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Post-workout drink. I love it. Absolutely. No judgment over here. Uh, Got to have lots of great vitamins. <laughs> All right. Let's let's get into let's get into the content. Jimmy, uh, thanks for being here. Can you give us, our listeners, a sense of your background, training, years of precepting, um, overall, uh, tell us about yourself. 
Yep. So originally from Orlando and I was originally a football player and got into pharmacy as a chemistry professor, basically asked me what's my backup plan to the NFL. And I went home and watched the episode of House and thought about it a few. And I was like, OK, I'm going to be a pharmacist as my backup plan. And that was my my, my pass out of class for a week. But um, went on to Presbyterian College for undergrad, played football there and went to Presbyterian for pharmacy school as well. And then went on to Advent Health Orlando for PGY1 until my PGY2 at Grady Health System, which was like my my dream program. And I always joke around and say I definitely had the best residency year that anyone's ever had. So I uh, went on there, spent some time in Augusta for, for about a year and a half and been spending the majority of my career at MUSC down here in sunny Charleston, South Carolina. And I tell people I really get to live my dream that I set out at 15 just the patient cases, working in ER, all the things I just really enjoy doing, the teaching. Uh, super excited to be energetic about all of this, to be honest. And I've been precepting now for about four years now. Yeah, and super excited for the work you guys have been doing and really excited to have this conversation. Yeah, Jimmy, and I, uh, I got to say the phone. I'm a big fan of your your podcast yourself, um, Pharmacy Pearl. So really happy to have you uh, on today's episode. And although, you know, the years, uh, you you have a, a number of years under your belt. I'm, I'm really excited. You're our first emergency department pharmacist we've brought on. I think formally trained, correct me if I'm wrong, Jason. Um, but uh, today's topic is really going to focus on teaching during medical emergencies. And, you know, I, I really think it is a challenge, and I I really owe a lot of respect to yourself and the emergency department of how you do this. And I'm hoping to give our listeners a really good uh, episode on on how to do this in the emergency department and doing it in a more acute uh, environment. So, uh, I guess the first question to dive right in: What's your approach to teaching during a medical emergency? Can you can you walk us through how you do this in the emergency department when when time is of the essence? Absolutely, and as you mentioned, this is something that's very challenging. It is a very challenging situation to teach medical emergencies while you're actually in those medical emergencies. But I think one of the things that you can do and it's something that I've tried to make a cornerstone of my teaching career is this concept I call teaching out loud. And I think it's something that really helped me. And it's something that I do with my learners where I create scenarios beforehand. And I make sure I try to go through the entire process of what I'm thinking of when the patient comes in with that resident or student. And I try to dive really deep into that. I, I go into small details like what, where's my equipment? Things like where is the syringe that I'm going to use? What type of needle will I use? Exactly where are these things located? And where's the medications? When I go to the Omnicell, what buttons I'm going to push? What alerts will come up? And I try to go through great detail to think about this because this is where people freak out when it comes to medical emergencies. This is where it really makes it to where I can say my entire plan and create my whole entire pharmacotherapy plan based on the information that I have out loud. And I noticed twofold. My residents and learners, they understand what I'm going to do and not be surprised. But I've also found that my physician and nursing colleagues, they really appreciate it as well because they just do things that I ask them to do indirectly, whether it's something as simple as, hey, I'm going to use this 
medication for RSI or whatever it is, I can go through my entire thought process of how I'm going to do teaching out loud. And this is one of the ways that I'm able to guide my residents while actually doing things. And I try to balance teaching versus patient care. I love the idea of like using your out loud speak to um, implant ideas in your team's head without having to physically be like, I'm going to recommend you do this, this, and this. It's just kind of said out loud some by somebody. So Jimmy, that's, that's a great, um, that's a great technique for your team, um, but also for your learners. I, I wonder like before you even approach this situation, um, do you let learners know like, Hey, when this emergency happens, like, don't run in like here's like some expectations for you up front. Uh, I specifically think about like maybe some of our ICU colleagues are floor colleagues um, that like it's not as common for us to have that kind of like rapid emergency may happen periodically. But like the the resident or the student comes in and they're like, yeah, I, I really want to be engaged in this. Do you do some pre-talk to like get them set up for what to expect, et cetera? Yeah. And what I try to do early on, if I have a learner orientation is I when I make sure even for on-call residents responding to medical emergencies at my shop, I try to let them know that, hey, I'm going to take the lead on this one. I'm going to walk you through this one and I'm going to be telling you things that I'm thinking out loud. And I try to set this this precedence early on that I don't think worrying about doing something. And I found over the years, especially in this early stage of road rotation and of the residency year, that they get very conscious of the expectations of the team on them. So rapidly, I try to disengage this fear and say, hey, I'm going to do all of this, but I want you to pay special attention to everything that's happening. And then we're going to have a very in-depth conversation. And this is what I found that really disengaged the fear and opens them up to learning. So as I'm trying to open them up and, and certain times, certain residents and students want to get involved and they are really, you know, eager. And there are simple things for them to do. And I say, hey, can you go grab this flush? And I, I won't ask them for two or three at a time. I ask them to get an individual flush every time that I need one because that way they're consistently going back and forth and grabbing the Ida. And they're like, oh, God, I'm being involved. Or I, I may do something like I may prep an epi myself and then have them prep the next one. So it's certain things I try to do to disengage them from the overall responsibilities while letting them watch everything and hear my thoughts so I can notice based off their, their body language, there are certain learners that want to be involved right now and there are certain tasks that I allow them to do. A few ways that I'm able to like disengage them initially and let them know I don't want you to do anything outside of learning. And then if they're eager, I'll throw them a bone here and now and then really make it so we can have a conversation later on. Um. I'm almost thinking it's like, I'm, I'm hearing like muscle memory where like, it's like the repetition over and over again, it's like syringe, syringe, syringe. And then like over time, they like automatically know where the syringe is. And the next step, prepare, prepare, prepare. And then they know to prepare and those chronological steps. I mean, it, it, it's such a, a, a great idea and um, perspective here. Jimmy, what do you do to like work with um, your residents and, and learners to get from that like modeling uh, modeling direct education stage up to like coaching and facilitating. How do you, how do you gauge that? Like this person's ready to go. I think that they're, um, like ready for the next step. Or do you just kind of like pull the rug out and say, okay, you're doing this next one. All right. So I would say in traditional work volumes and in severities, cause COVID made things a little bit more unbearable to where we had to divide and conquer early on. 
But in traditional environments, what I like to do, especially right after I've done modeling some of these behaviors, is that I have a very in-depth conversation and simulations where I say, okay, we did this particular case, but what if this happened? And then I ask them certain questions and I drill them. And if they're able to really understand what's going on and engage with me and I can follow their thought pattern and I would challenge them to say, you want to use Rocky Ronin for this patients? Why? And then challenge them to say, okay, be able to go through their entire thought process as if a nurse or a physician was going to challenge them. And if they can explain this to me and I'm able to find that I can be there for them and walk them through the scenario from the side and they can be affecting the resuscitation, then I switch positions and say, hey, I'm going to be your runner now and I'll be, I can be involved in a slightly different way. So once I switch positions with them and initially once they're able to show me that they understand the thought process that's needed, I, I, I switch places and tell them, OK, now I want you to think out loud. And that's really been something that's been intriguing for me because I get to assess them prior to the patient getting there to let them know how much rope I'm going to give them. So, for example, we had an EMS report prior to a patient getting there. I say, OK, rapid fire. What's your thought process? What, do, what medication do you want to get? What are what are the things that you're thinking of? What do you need for this case? And I always use the phrase with them. What medication will you need for the next 15 minutes right now? And I caveat with the scenarios that you think and the ones that you know that I may think to ask you what medications would you need? Then I caveat it with I'll take over if things get rough and I'm really able to kind of switch roles and let them fly solo if they're prepared at that time. And Jimmy, it seems like in this methodology that, you know, not every resident student learner is going to get through that same trajectory. Um, I guess, how do you deem success in something where, you know, maybe a resident doesn't or, or learner doesn't progress up to being to the level of that final stage of facilitation of an of a of the precepting model. Um, do you can can you still like find success in those residents and, and what is it okay that you have different levels of of experiences for the different levels of learners? Absolutely. I think it's really challenging for those for those cases, but for those learners that are not able to actually do it a lot of it, they're just able to talk through certain things. And I've had students in particular that just wouldn't get involved. It was just a little bit too much for them. They were not able to drop medications. They were not able to label. And it was just times where they're just too overwhelmed with the actual resuscitation. But afterwards, I was talking through certain aspects of the case. And I was able to say they understood the pharmacotherapy plan. They understood why we did certain things. But because there are just certain moments you don't have enough volume to show them and get them involved, they just wasn't ready. And when it comes to those moments, they're just a little kind of out of the blue and a little green. So what I do for when they're not ready, I try to change up where I get them involved. And I like to really get them involved in these subacute emergencies where there are certain traumas that are not involved. <laughs> you know, you have someone that has failed and they're okay. These are the patients where they would get some fentanyl, some tetanus, some antibiotics. Again, not overly acute in nature, but I get them involved in, in those cases where you get a lot of volume with those. And for those patients that don't progress, I really like to get them just some easy, some easy, some easy passes, I like to say, some easy ways to get them involved early on. Jimmy, you um when you're done with these and you do that like in-depth discussion with your residents, do you do any other clinical debriefs with team members, with uh, your um, learners, et cetera, or is it just that piece with the learners? And Yeah, I've been very fortunate at MUC and Grady. 
uh, it's, I get a, a huge team as part of my traumas and a lot of multidisciplinary interactions. And after the case, what happens is it's usually impromptu teaching where I'm debriefing with my residents and I usually catch the other interns and lower level um, physicians that are part of our trauma team looking over Engage. And what I like to do is introduce them to the case as well and get their thoughts on certain things where I know that it's something that's going to be on their boards. Hey, why'd you order this particular, you know, CTA or CT admin pelvis or ask some questions involved in, in their role in the case? And that way everyone gets to be part of the learning process. And in a more formal debrief, like in the res- post-resuscitation and the cardiac arrest, I'm usually one of the ones to ask for a debrief very quickly. I know people want to run off and I say, hey, what went well? There are some some different things that, that could have happened and it gets everyone's thoughts of it and see how we can improve as pharmacy, nursing, physician staff, and really go from there. But depending on the, on the day, I'm trying to engage very deeply as a debrief for my learners. And depending on the case, I really try to get involved with other specialties and ask them certain questions to let them know that I'm engaged with their learning as well. And I've noticed that a lot of the interns, I really like it when you're down here. Can you really teach me a lot, even from the non-pharmacy part? Uh, Jimmy, I, I think... Um, I love that idea of like collaborating in a multidisciplinary way. It's a great way of modeling a great interdisciplinary, um, you know, service with your, your learners. One of the things that comes to mind, and this is a bit tangential. Um, so bear with me, but as you're having these like really challenging in depth conversations about like, well, what if this happens? And what if this happens? And what if this happens? Uh, I, I can just envision myself as a learner being like, why is this dude asking me so many questions? Like, is he just trying to make me look stupid? So how do you avoid that? How do you like strike that balance to like not do like a classic, like, right, like pimp the student or the learner? Like, how do you strike that balance? That's the challenge. And I think that's definitely the challenge. And I think one of the things I've been fortunate over a period of time is that people are starting to know me before taking my rotation, whether it's just they've heard about the rotation from other people and they know that I like to ask a lot of questions, scenarios, but I'm hoping they also know that I, I try to make it engaging. And I try to be more personable where it's not, at least not very serious conversation. A lot of the times when I'm teaching, I'm smiling. I'm trying to make all of my nonverbal communication very positive and open. I say, hey, this is just your thought process. I just want to get this. I just want to, I just want to make you great. And I try to do a lot of positive feedback when they're doing well. And I try to make sure I minimize the degree of negativity of saying things like, you're wrong. I try to say, hey, that's probably not the best answer. I don't know. What, what, what do your nursing staff think about that? What is the other team going to think about that? Those are there, there are different ways to do that. So I try to minimize the negative complexity of it because I realize there's a fine line that you play. And the medical residents are always there, especially the surgeon. It's like, oh, he's gonna you gotta watch out. Jimmy's gonna pimp you. <laughs> Jimmy's coming. Jimmy's coming uh, for you, baby. It's funny. He's like, why do you know stuff about CTs and X-rays and stuff? I'm like. Someone who's asked me these questions, your attendings ask these questions. I'm trying to help you not get pimped by them on rounds. So that's how I phrase it to the other medical residents. And it really just becomes a really cool environment and where I try to just be very popular and make it a, a joking um, a way. But just I want them to be curious. And I try to promote that same curiosity when I'm doing the, 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 the questioning. I'm saying this is the question I'm asking myself. So I try to make it to where they are, they're aware of it. And I try to make the interaction, the nonverbal communication, and even the way I phrase certain things from a verbal, very positive towards them to where I can make them think, hey, this is actually fun. This is, I'm, I'm curious now. 
I love that, Jimmy. Yeah. I think the curiosity is like one of the great ways to like disarm that like gut reaction of like someone's someone's trying to make me look dumb. So I I really appreciate that, Dave. You were going to say something? Is, yeah, this is bringing back like I don't know, if, you know, back when I was my first week as a as a PGY two. My on pharmacist shared a uh, an office with our ICU pharmacist, and he had like this article like laminated up on his wall, and it was called the Art of Pimping. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like as as you uh, as you went through this, you know, you re- you really hear the, the the truth to that, right? The the art of doing like you know not overly burdening somebody, but get them get them on track to you know to be able to think ahead, right? Anyway, I'm I'm digressing a little bit down, but um, I want to I want to get to another. I don't know, topic that can kind of relate to this in the, in the field of medical emergencies and, and really that sometimes medical emergencies, unfortunately, end in negative clinical outcomes, whether that be a a patient fatality, whether that be a failed resuscitation, um, a number of different negative outcomes that unfortunately you're going to see in clinical practice. And unfortunately in the emergency department, you are going to see. So I guess, um, I, I want to start by, by opening up openly and saying how you manage these failed interactions, failed challenging situations, um, and any miscommunication that, that can come with them. Yeah, so it's definitely tough, and I'm no expert. I would say that it's an art and something I've tried to learn over the years. And a lot of it starts intra-resuscitation because we're fortunate now after you know, 15, 20 minutes into the case, uh, most of us have a good sense of how this is going to end. And again, you may have some surprises, but for the most part, the information you've gathered in the scenario that you've played in your mind, one of the scenarios is always going to be, what, what if we fail? And I try, depending on the learner and where they are in their career, I try to be very conscious when it comes to my students. Uh, one of my, in my emergency medicine elective, I bring in five or so students every Friday to shadow me in the ER. And last week I had a case where they were there and we had an intubation. I thought part of the process, one of the scenarios is that this patient may go into cardiac arrest. And we had just talked to the family members and they said, do one round of CPR and that's it. So she has a very high probabilities of not, you know, making it back. So through that process, I positioned my students at that point towards the door. And I said, as this go on, I don't want you to ask me if it becomes too much at any point. I want you to step out. Not this is not part of your grade. This is not part of anything I want you to do. Some, it's not important. It's not important to me that you, you learn this right now. But do you think that that is a necessary need in a emergency department rotation that students or learners need to have that experience? I think so. I'm fortunate to say that not the fir- it doesn't need to happen the first time every time. So I, I know that my, my students are going to be in the ER three or four times. So from there, I say, OK, the first time, this is what we're going to be expected to see. I let them know, hey, this patient may die. I'll be very honest with you. I want to make sure that you have that in your mindset before we walk into this room. Are you okay with that? Or do you want, you want to hang out right now? And as we, as you progress through the rotation, as you progress through the time, then you can start having conversations about how to deal with it. But I think initially I tried to position the students and let them know through the phase of the resuscitation, how we're going, things are may not be going well. If you want to step out, this is okay. And then once we go through the process, I have a student for, for weeks and I say, Hey, this is what's going on. Let's debrief the same exact way. What could we have done better? What could we have done differently? But now let's transition to the emotional side of this. 
because I believe that's a, a big part. And last week I got my students to put them in the room and said, hey, this is how I deal with tough cases. Usually it, it involves something personal to me. So whether it's someone like a child or it's someone who looks like a family member, I call. Uh, I've cried on shit multiple times. I felt these things and I let them out immediately. And I talk to people, let them know what I go through. And, and I share that. Case, I have to walk this off. I have to have to do this to get myself through the case. And I let them know that all these things, because if you say, hey, I've cried, I've called people, I have to shift. I have to walk out for a second. Then it makes it to where they're OK. They're OK when they have to do it. So I try again to put into phrase and phases because I believe the first time they go through this, they doesn't need to be the first time they see everything. But after a while, I try to transition them all the way through it and even check it up on residents and learners the day after when they've had a tough case. Mash casualty is a big one. Very challenging case involving OB. All these things where I may check in and say, hey, how are you doing when I talk about it? Not. And I can just leave the door open for that. So it sounds like it's so it almost sounds like it's like the surprise effect yeah. of saying that, like, you know, if a, if a learner is not prepared, I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to parallel this to my oncology practice. I'm not emergency department trained, but like when I had students, learners, et cetera, you know, when you had a newly diagnosed patient with a with a metastatic cancer and, and a student goes in there, you have to have the expectation that 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 patient, family member, et cetera, may have some, some very hard emotions in that conversation. And it may bring up, but I, I found preparing students for these conversations, preparing residents for what could happen in these scenarios was, was really effective at, at having them deal with these mixed emotions that come up in clinical practice. Absolutely. Can I just say, Jimmy, as, as someone who has like a, unfortunately, trauma-filled background, um, with like my own kind of challenges and struggles as a, a person. Um, I, I am incredibly appreciative of you taking the time to like explicitly tell people like your grade is not attached to your reaction and how you manage these things. Your social and emotional intelligence is something that will build over time and not something like day one. I'm just going to like dump you in on like a, you know, uh, postpartum case, right? Like I think about like my first, literally it was my first week back from uh, paternity leave with my first child. We'd already had multiple miscarriages at that point. And I had an OB case in the OR plan C-section was not going well, not looking well. There was no backup. There was no one around. I had two learners and it's like me trying to figure out like, what am I going to do about like myself as a person as like, I'm literally watching this person that could have been my wife like three weeks ago. Uh, it's like, we all struggle with it. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're a brand new student and you've not experienced it. If you're a practitioner that's been doing this for 15, 20 years, like there are cases that will get to you and, and make it really challenging. So I, I applaud you for, um, like sharing that piece of advice for people. Um, because I think we all have this idea that like, well, you're in, you're in medicine. You need to have like a stiff upper lip and like, you just got to keep going. Like, no, sometimes you don't, maybe you need to like call someone, find help. And, and I really love that idea with connecting with that family member that like maybe brought that up for you. That that's some, uh, really great advice. And I just want to like hone in on that as like the emotional intelligence piece. So thank you, Jimmy. Thank you. It's tough. And I think the more we're in these states and I think that we're fortunate to be experienced with these things and see it so often that we know at the end of the day, 
none of this stuff matters. <laughs> a lot of these, you know, I like to say, you know, I like to say pharmacy is very concerned with surrogate markers of professionalism. And this is some, these are one of the things that I've heard people say before. Oh, I had my student cry on me. I had my, my resident cry on me because of blah, blah, blah. And it's like, that doesn't matter. Again, I've, I've done some, some things that I really appreciate, but I've also cried on shifts. So that to me doesn't make it any better or worse. And it really doesn't, doesn't matter much. Our students and learners should know that they should, they're not going to be impacted by that. And any preceptors out there that are, you know, judging their students or learners based on their reaction to something. And they're literally two, one to two years into their career. You know, I I have a problem with that. I hear you. I hear you. Um, Taking a slight twist into the positive direction. uh, When you have like a, uh, I think about myself as like a PGY2 critical care resident that did some time in the ED. Like when you have a case that just everything works out perfect, you like sedation is spot on, RSI is spot on, you get pressure started, like all of a sudden they start looking like way better. They pink up, they look great. Like how do you like manage the emotions of like that extreme success and then like pivot that to like maybe additional learning opportunities or like what do you do to like temper that resident from that walks out of that like case and is like, boom. I nailed that. Don't talk to me. I got this. I'm out. Absolutely. Man. Those are, I think those are the hardest cases to learn from. Um, I actually, cause again, with my, my background in sports, when everything goes well, you don't practice those things that get you there, the, the, the fundamentals. And one of the things that makes it unique is doing those moments where I celebrate the win very quickly. And that can be as something as, Hey, you did a phenomenal job on that. I'm buying dinner. But before I buy dinner, let's talk about this a little bit more. Let's talk about what, what if, what if this would have happened? What if that would have happened? And then what I notice is that they go from like, ah, all right. Uh, okay. <laughs> or I was, I was really happy about that, but I think we know, and especially in the ER and in, in the unit, you know, you can never celebrate too early. I've had cases where I thought we did a great job. We've got Ross blood pressures looking good, titrated off pressors, and then they go to the unit and code again and don't make it. So I think it's more of a, a standpoint of, okay, what are the next steps? And I keep I keep reminding my resident, my learners, what's the next medication? What's the next step? You know, what's the what if this happens? So if we get a great patient, we resuscitate them, we get sedation on board. Okay, if the patient becomes hypotensive and agitated, now what? If the patient becomes uh, hypertensive and agitated, now what? And try to make it to where you have a you keep a plan going, and you try to transition that to additional learning. And what I like to do is I like to ask certain questions that I know they probably haven't progressed to yet, and make it to where they can have some more questions to go home with. You know, I make all my learners have a, um, an Excel sheet with DI questions for every rotation to where I say, okay, at the end of the week, give me your response to all the questions I asked during the week. So one of the things that I do is that during certain moments where we're high-fiving, that's great. That's a phenomenal job. We're going to celebrate this. But there's something at part of this that we could have done better. So I talk about those parts of the, of the case. And there are some other aspects that we didn't get to Yet. So I try to really dig deeper into that and then play, play the devil's advocate. What if what if this happens? Then what if that happened? And it's continuously changing the scenario. Uh, I, I think I fell in love with simulations and there's a thought process with that. And you can continuously change the scenario and get additional learning aspects out of one case. I love that. It's like you've um, 
to bring it back to sports, it's like you've taken the Tom Brady method and brought it to healthcare, right? Which is like, oh, I don't use Tom Brady. <laughs> you could like never be Gosh. perfect, right? Like there, there's no such thing as perfect. There's only like striving for perfection, and like you'll always be moving there. So that's yeah. Sorry, gonna, I brought up Tom Brady, but <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna mix the, the two last thoughts together and get your perspective on this. So, in a case of a maybe a, a failed resuscitation where you're dealing with mixed emotions. I guess, how do you bring up successful management of that case with a resident or learner that ultimately feels defeated because the outcome was negative, but the way they handled that situation might have been, you know, pristine. It might have been like everything they could have done. They they managed it well. They held themselves. They were resourceful. I guess, how do you how do you overcome that and, and work that balance into a into a negative outcome case? I think what I've, what I've learned through that timing is going to be everything. And reading your residents and where they are emotionally at that time. So there's there's sometimes why I would say after a tough resuscitation, hey, take 15. Take 10, 15, 30 minutes, go eat, go do different things, and just detach from the situation for a second and kind of get along with those, get away from the environment, get away from the stimuli. We're fortunate to so our resident office is like a, very far from the ED. I make them go elsewhere for a second and give them time to like be okay. And once we come back, then I can start engaging into the, the, the processes that was actually pretty good about that. Because usually, again, the, the great thing about the ER and, this, and the acute care in general, there's times where it's like, hey, we tried. We did, we did all the things. We did these things well. And usually during that time frame when they're away, I can get gather um, feedback from the team. And one thing that I noticed is that all of the residents love getting appreciation from other specialties. When the nurse say, "Hey, they, you did a phenomenal job getting those getting those drugs set." When the when the physician tells them, "Hey, I could we couldn't have done anything with you without without you being there." Those things really prep them up, and then once I kind of beef up their spirits with the things that we did well, and then we can start getting to more. It's all I, I hate to make it this way, but it's all about the case. The case. What was the actual case? What did we do? Did we do those things correctly? And for next time, what what else can we do better? You know, how can we modify? But I think taking some time away from the, the from that scenario, getting away from that environment, beefing them up with some positive feedback. If they did well, um, I'm, I'm not a fan of always giving great feedback. If you, if you if you are horrible and I had to step in and take over the case. But I think they did well. They tried their or they tried their best from what the skill set that they have. It's always a way to say, hey, this is what you've done well. You've learned this particular skill set. You you made the right decisions based off what you know. And I can't ask I can't ask any more from you from that standpoint. But this is some different ways from to learn and ask their opinion. How do you think the case went? How do you think all the, the different the different specialties performed? And really just try to, to make it to where I try to not make it personal if I can. Um but at the same time, it's like giving them the positive feedback and asking them what how what, what is the learning process from this case and, and try to move on from that and get their get their, their mindsets on something else. It's tough. <laughs> if it was easy, everyone would do it, Jimmy. <clears throat> Any last suggestions for particularly maybe new practitioners? Um yeah, let me start that over. Jimmy, any uh, any suggestions for new practitioners, maybe in a variety of settings, say like the floor, ICU, um, 
you know, that maybe don't run into medical emergencies all the time, but uh, do periodically and, and maybe need like to make split decisions, like any last minute tips or advice for, for those um, situations outside the ED? I think one of the biggest thing I would take from this, and I guess the model that I, I keep you know preaching about thinking out loud, it's okay to tell, tell your learner to sit there, watch everything, and we're going to discuss things afterwards. And, and you can discuss things when you're ready as a new practitioner, because sometimes a new practitioner, you're very unsure of what you're doing. Sometimes you're unsure of how to how to you know discuss these things. It's OK to take a moment, take care of your task and then later on a different time, then discuss these things with, uh, with the resident or learner. And then also, I think one of the biggest things that I, I struggle with initially is not having the answers to the questions up front. I struggle with initially is not having the answer to the questions up front. And for me, I realized that was okay. And one of the things that my, my residents and learners told me, they respect me more for me telling them what I didn't know and going to look the information up myself. I wouldn't go send them to get the answer. Sometimes I would go myself and find and find the answer. And then we'll talk about that as well, because I think there's a, a group of people out there who they don't know. They play the game where, you should know that uh, you should just get back to me, you know, the next day while they look it up and find the answer. But I think <laughs> you're saying that you don't know. And that's uh, the easy way. Yeah. That's Fake the it till you way make it. Yeah. This is a recurring theme, Jimmy. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're our second guest that has said the same thing. And, and I think, yeah, having that vulnerability to tell someone like, I don't know. And then what you do to like make uh like rectify that situation is really important. It's modeling vulnerability. It's modeling like understanding that you're never gonna be a hundred percent like confident in every answer that you have because it's not and possible. It, and it teaches your learner to say, like, it's okay to say I don't know, mm-hmm. right? Like when they're the preceptor in like a year or two down the line, and it teaches them that it's okay to not know the answer to everything, and it teaches us this fake it to you make it method which which isn't isn't you know it's not great for precepting absolutely not i've actually went to the point to where even if they're not there if i make a wrong recommendation or if i have a if, if i look at a case incorrectly i will bring it to their attention because what happens is it what it really does is it allows them to say well if he brings this up to me then it's okay and when i'm questioning them they notice it's okay for them not to know as well just in those moments so i think it's made it to where so it's a a better environment to where if I don't know something and I bring that up, if I made a mistake and I bring that up and I show them the steps that I've done to go about uh, rectifying that answer, it helps them build skill sets to understand how to problem solve. But it also opens up that vulnerability to where when I'm asking a lot of questions or I'm doing my teaching out loud thing, it's okay. They don't feel like I'm pimping them as much and it, it builds a better relationship. So, so true, Jimmy. Um, as, as we wrap up on time, um, you know, I, I wanted to thank you, Jimmy, for, for being part of this discussion. Um, one thing we, we really like to gauge every guest we bring on this podcast uh, is what is one thing you took from a past preceptor or mentor and is, is involve that in your current practice today? I think uh, the biggest thing and Jim Priano out of Advent Health, he, he really did a good job of producing the type of preceptor I am today. He would just always say question everything. Uh, it's something very simple, but I think it's not just a, a term more so than it is a particular uh, lifestyle as a, as, a, as a learner. And I think when he says question everything, it's like question me, uh, question the literature. And he's always said, huh, that's interesting. 
I wonder we should look into that. And he would just show me, just question all these different things. And what it did was it made me understand that initially you learn in a black and white fashion in a completely gray world. And once I understood that curiosity can help you navigate the gray better and question things, it really led to a much higher job satisfaction. And really just me, I like to say that I'm just in love with, with emergency medicine and just pharmacy in general. And that's the one thing that I've I've took from from Jim Priano, just questioning everything and and displaying that that same enthusiasm to question everything. I can definitively say, Jimmy, you are uh, like the model person for always looking to learn and educate. I mean, you you do it in your spare time, you do it at work, you do it uh, in your your second job. <laughs> um, so um, strong work there, bud. I, I appreciate that. Um, I just wanted to pop in to say thanks, Jimmy, uh, for doing this. Uh, you know, we've gotten to work on a few things uh, prior to this. And um, anytime I get a chance to pick your brain about uh, any topic has always been illuminating. And and I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today. I'm just thankful for you guys. I, I think the listeners for listening to me talk for the last few minutes and just thankful for the opportunity. I'm, I'm really happy with the work you guys are doing because a space that we really need it. And especially in a more casual way. And I think most people want to have preceptive development. They feel a little overwhelmed with the, I would say, dryness of the information. And I'm just being honest, you know, uh, how dry a lot of information is. But you guys have done something really special in being able to get the key concepts, uh, get the key topics and talk in a manner, in a way that preceptors get. So I don't want to em- underemphasize the work that you guys are doing. This is going to be big. It's going to be huge. And for now and in for the years to come. So so to work with you guys and again, everything you've asked me to do, I'm just going to do because I really appreciate when other people are passionate about certain things and precepting and teaching is, you know, something I, I really live by. I really appreciate that, Jimmy. I'm blushing. <laughs> I don't know if it's that or, or, or my or my afternoon drink. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but listeners. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so, so much, much for joining us today. today. All right, guys, you just got done listening to our latest episode with Precept Responsibly discussing teaching during medical emergencies. And I really think those guys have done a phenomenal job. And as you guys can tell, it's a great episode. And we're going to do more work with them. We're going to do more work with some of the other podcasts that are out there because, again, we're just a community. So uh, for our our third year anniversary, if you guys are listening to this, uh, we're going to be giving out merch all month. So what I want you to do is tag us on social media and let us know what was your favorite episode this month or shoot us a DM. And let us know uh, some some feedback of what, what you experienced with us over the last three years. So I thank you guys. And you know how we end every episode. You don't have to be a pharmacist. You don't work in an ED, but everything you do, make sure you farm so hard. Closes it. Ozzy scratches his head. Whatever she's looking for, it isn't in there.